uh, you guys coming today. I have got to read um, for a second here, Dr. Morton Lloyd-Jones, before we read this passage and pray, because uh, he uh, has just some, some really interesting things about this passage and about every passage. He did 366 sermons on Romans. So you say, man, why are you listening to the three of us clowns for 50? Because he's got seven times more information, right? 50 times seven in all of these. And they are really, really good. If you, Josh, what's that thing called that you get those? Josh is the one that put me on the doctor. Um, what's it? I get it on Spotify. Oh, you They're do? They're all uploaded on no, Spotify. I don't know what that is. Uh, I get it, let's get it on something else. Grant, do you know what that is? It's like Martin Lloyd-Jones Trust. Yeah, there you go. MLJ.org. Nice. Okay. <laughs> okay, thank you. And it is so amazing. That is such... And you know what about that I've loved about this is he is so excited. Not because of the intellectual part about this, although he called this very with great intellectual satisfaction that we can hold on to these truths. And so this is so foundational um, to everything, but he preached every Friday, not every Friday night, from October to March. They took some time off to October to March from 1955 to 1968, 13 years, every Friday night. And so that is just fascinating. He says he hopes the sermons on the book of Romans was that they would not only help Christian people to understand more clearly the great doctrines of the faith, but that they would also fill them with a joy unspeakable and full of glory and bring them into a condition in which they will be lost in the wonder, love, and praise of the Lord. So, MacArthur said this is the most difficult passage. Somebody says that every week, and that's why we're starting with Grant um, uh, on this one. Uh, Josh, how about reading... Verse 11, how about reading verse 11 for, just to remind us a bit where we came from, and then uh, 12 to 21, and we'll get to work. Oh, and one more thing, next week, uh, Grant rightly titled them, regular, uh, Rabbi Randy Tyler Williams guest lecture for two weeks, uh, Lord willing. And so we can't wait, um, that is going to be phenomenal, and you do not want to miss that where Tyler probably clears up all the heresy that we've had since January, um, for sure. But I can't wait till he till he gets here and gonna join us for a couple weeks. Josh. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life 
through the one man, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray for us, God. Yeah. Father, we are amazed at these truths. I pray that we would teach them clearly and that they would work down into our hearts and affect how we live and think. Lord, I pray that they would truly inflame our worship. And uh, Lord, I pray that you'd be with us in our time today. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Grant, can you help us first to understand big picture here why this is so such a valuable, uh, not like any other passage in Romans, is it? But why is this one maybe even more so in some ways? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we say this every time. If you read enough people, they will either say this is the best passage in Romans or this is the hardest passage in Romans. And I think I heard both. Phil Johnson didn't let us down. He said this is one of the most difficult passages in Romans to understand. Um, so that's always encouraging, specifically the pa the part that I picked without knowing it. But um, I do think it's extremely important because it's not something that's talked about very frequently, uh, the doctrine of imputation or... Um, federal headship. You don't really hear those words very, very frequently, um, but it's foundational, I think, for the doctrine of justification, which Paul was just explaining in the beginning of chapter 5. Without imputation, you don't have justification. You don't have penal substitution of atonement. If no one can stand in your place <clears throat> who can pay for your sins, you lose some of the great doctrines of Romans if you don't have this one tied down correctly. And while it is really difficult to understand, I do think it's it's certainly attainable to understand, yeah. for sure, with some with some work. Um, it's typically talked about in terms of uh, threefold imputation. I, I have to plug this book. I have to pull it, Mark McAndrew. I didn't finish reading it, but I got to plug it anyway. But um, I read about half of it. It's called Death and Adam: Life in Christ by J. V. Fesco. I don't know much about this guy other than he's a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary, um, but he does a really good job in the first half of the book outlining the history of the doctrine of imputation all the way back from the early church, fathers through the Reformation, through the heresies, through the councils, everything that was going on with that doctrine. So if you're interested in these two, um, or the doctrine of imputation, namely the imputation of Adam's guilt to our account as well as Christ's righteousness to our account, this book is, is very helpful for that. <clears throat> but imputation in general, uh, Fesco describes it like that, like this. The, this is to highlight the importance of this doctrine for us. Threefold imputation is a weight-bearing pillar for the doctrine of justification. A weight-bearing pillar for the doctrine of justification. I think that for us should really set the alarm bells of like, this is extremely important. If it's something upon which justification can stand or fall, it's really important. And the threefold imputation would be this, that Adam's guilt is uh, Im impute, meaning just to assign to another, to count towards another person. Um, the threefolds of, the, of this imputation is Adam's guilt imputed to all human beings, the sins of the elect imputed to Christ, 
Christ's active and passive obedience imputed to the elect. And the main text defending this doctrine in the Bible would be, uh, it's found in many places, but the main two would be 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, and then ours today is like the, the big text that everybody goes to for this doctrine, Romans 5, 12 to 21. Uh, anything else you want to talk about, Drew, before we no, just start diving in? That's so good. No, thank you. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So, um, starting in verse verse 12. <clears throat> Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So I picked this section without really knowing what the section was when Mr. Jerry asked, and then I read Phil Johnson, and he said this is the hardest section to interpret in all of Romans. So, And then when I got into it, I was like, yes, yes, you are, you are very correct, Dr. Johnson. But I do think there are some things helpful. I guess just spoiler, just to have this on, I think it's important to have this on the back of our mind as we're going through this, because sometimes the idea of federal headship, or I think it can be called representative headship, can rub people the wrong way, because we're so individualistic in our society. We, we don't like the idea of someone else's uh, guilt being imputed to us for something that we did not do. Um, so that can seem alien to us, but without that, there is no justification. If we don't have Adam as our federal head, how can we have Christ as our federal head? If, if Adam, um, if we're not, without being in Adam or being in Christ, we, we lose the doctrine of justification. So I think that's important to have as we're going through this and we're talking about things of uh, Adam's guilt being imputed to us. And if that sort of just irks you a little bit, I think, you know, all of, all of the people I've read talked about the sweetness of knowing that Christ is also our federal head now. And, and that's natural in, in human tendency, I think, is we don't like the negative, but we, we don't really care so much about the positive. We're like, oh, that's unfair that Adam's guilt is, is imputed to us. But when it's something good imputed to us, we don't really, you know, it definitely doesn't rub us the wrong way. Grant, do you know what someone said that I, that I never thought about? They said the negative is really bad. But when you talk about how much better the positive is right. than the negative, that softens the blow. But the unbeliever, they don't have the positive yet. Right. So really, all that they're, they have at this point is the negative with the potential of the positive, which does have to probably irk them. Yes, yes. The it. negative is very negative. There's, there's death in Adam. You know, being in Adam is, is not good. That's, you know, we've been building a lot of theology as we go through Romans. We've had justification. We've had propitiation, penal substitutionary atonement. And we've had the doctrine of total depravity, but that would be where it comes out of is, is this doctrine of original sin, imputation, and federal headship. But, but starting in verse 12, um, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, that one man being Adam, and death <coughs> through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Uh, this one is kind of difficult to understand, so for me... Um, I thought I had it figured out about midnight last night, and then I reread it one more time, and I was like, oh, man, uh, I'm not so sure. But uh, I do think I'm leaning towards, towards one direction. But certainly what we can say that is not being said here is the view that was 
was given by Pelagius. You've probably heard of Pelagianism, uh, which is a heresy. Uh, he was a, a monk in like 300 to 400 BC that put forth the idea that human beings are born basically uh, neutral or, or not under sin. And then as you sin, then you, you become fallen again. You follow in the example of Adam being sinless at birth, sinning, and then falling. And that was refuted by Augustine, um, who put forward a lot of the view that we're going to talk about today. But definitely, I do. you can without a doubt say that this is not saying that we are born sinless, uh, like, which is what Pelagianism would be saying. Uh, we would hold that we are born in sin, in the sin of Adam, with his guilt on us, uh, totally depraved. But the part here that is a little difficult would be, how are we in Adam? What does it mean to be in Adam, and what does it mean to be in Christ? And I think the important thing to have here in the background, which is what Josh and Jerry will be talking about here soon, would would be that Paul is primarily contrasting the headship. Uh, He's comparing and contrasting the headship of Adam and Christ throughout this whole passage. And I think that can really highlight that context and the context of coming from him talking about justification can really help us as we try to explain some of the more difficult parts in verse 12. But the difficult part here would be, what does it mean because all sinned? Why does um, death spread to all men because all sinned? So we know that uh, the one sin of Adam would be uh, eating of the forbidden fruit, which was expressly forbidden by God. So he violated an express command of God and thus fell into sin. And through that one sin and one man, death came in through sin, and so now all die. And then, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And that phrase, because all sinned, is, is kind of curious. Just on a first read, that would, uh, the way I read it and the way many people would even take it still would be um, you die because you sin. But I, I do think that this is probably more likely talking about all sinned, death spread to all men because all sinned in Adam all sinned in Adam when he sinned. It's not talking so much about personal sin as it's talking about the sin that we that took place by our federal head and thus throwing us all into sin and thus death. Um, that's, I'll try to defend that a little bit, but going on to verse 13, for, Paul starts sort of a parenthetical phrase here, uh, sort of just cuts his sentence in half and, and introduces a new topic somewhat. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. I think that phrase right there is really important in understanding this as well, as Adam was a type of the one to come. He was a type of Christ, or he was a copy of Christ who was to come, highlighting that Christ is also going to be a, a federal head of a new, new race. There's Adam the head of the human race. There's going to be Christ the head of the redeemed race to come. But there's two, I guess the two ways you could take that because all sinned um, before Paul starts that parenthetical phrase would be um, either the idea of personal sin, that we die because of our personal sin, or that we sin through Adam. And then out of that view, there's two more views that you could take, that if we sin through Adam, which is, I do believe, what's being talked about here, um, it could be that Adam is operating as our federal head and therefore we fall with him, or it could be that we, what's called the seminal view, that we sinned literally with Adam in the garden because we were 
in his loins in a seminal view. So they would be, that view would be holding to what happened in Hebrews when Levi was in the loins of Abraham, when Abraham paid tribute to Melchizedek. I don't think that's really what's going on here, um, namely because I think the biggest disagreement with that would be the contrast between Christ and our relationship with Christ as our federal head and our relationship with Adam as our federal our previous federal head would be we're not we're we're not similarly related to Christ as our federal head we're, we're counted as um, with Christ because he is our federal head we're not you know his progeny we're not produced by him so the seminal view would be that um, the fallen nature of Adam is spread to us simply because we are his offspring as we're pr- the produced offspring of Adam we inherit his sin nature but I do think the better view would be because he was our federal head, he acted as a representative for us, and therefore we fall in him when he fell. And that can be kind of an alien thought to us, but it's actually, when I thought about it, it's federal headship or representative headship is something that we have in everyday life. That happens all the time. Men are typically the head of their family. We elect people to be our representatives and to act on our behalf. Uh, kings act on behalf of countries all the time, and what they do bears consequences to the people of that country. You can think about World War II Germany. Hitler acted on behalf of that country, and there were dire consequences for years and years to come for that country. So it's not something that is completely alien to our, our modern our modern day life, but um, I do think is the best way to understand what's going on here. Um, this is also, I think, could be defended if we just look really briefly, I know I'm starting to ramble, but um, just the contrast that Paul is painting here between Adam and the sin that came through Adam and Christ and the righteousness that comes through him, just some of the things. For many died through the one man's trespass, uh, the free gift of grace of, the, of that one man, Jesus Christ abounded for many, and the free grace is not like the result of the one man's sin. Uh, judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Uh, Because of one man's trespass, trespass, death reigned through that one man. Um, Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, one act of righteousness leads to justification for all men. One man's disobedience, many were made sinners, Uh, one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So Paul is really belaboring the comparison between the two in this. He repeats it over and over and over. And I think one of the biggest um, defenses of the view that we relate to Adam as our federal head would be found in verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Um, And I think if you have the LSB translation, you'll see that Instead of made righteous or made uh, sinners, it's appoint. Um, there's a little bit of debate about whether it's made or appointed. Mary Beth, does it say appoint? It's appointed. Okay. Yeah, and um, I do think it means appoint, um, counted as righteous or mm-hmm. counted as sinners, although you probably can't separate completely out that we are counted as righteous and we will be finally made righteous and we were counted as sinners and we became sinners through sin. But I do think it's important to know the distinction that we sin because we're sinners. We don't, we're not um, sinners because we sin. The sin comes out of our nature, 
Not can so you, much the action. Can you take, let's take a second to think about that. That's a question that we always ask at school when we get to this point. And it doesn't seem, could you explain uh, the difference there? Because both are true. We do sin because we're sinners. And we are sinners because we sin. Why do you hold to the one as stronger than the other from this passage? Because you're absolutely right. Right. Uh, yeah, because I think if you say we are sinners because we sin, you would be sort of drifting towards the view that uh, Pelagian had, that we are born morally neutral, and then therefore when we sin, we become sinners. When it's not the case that we're fallen in our federal head, Adam, um, he was the head of our, our race uh, as the first man. He had no parents. He was created the first man. And, and Phil Johnson even pointed out that uh, you would pick him as the guy that you would want to represent you. He was better, faster, smarter, wiser. I mean, he lived a, about a thousand years. Um, you know, if you, if you wanted to pick somebody to go up to bat for you, that would be the guy anyway, rather than yourself. But uh, he was representing us. He fell. We <coughs> fell with him. And so, therefore, we're born sinners. And so, therefore, that the sinning comes from that, not so much just from the action, even though we are sinners because we sin as well. Yeah. Josh, do you have any thoughts on that? Not to be, so. not the grant. Grant's not done yet, I'm pretty sure. But do you have any thoughts on uh, that as you kind of were pondering? Uh, not right now. Jo Grant. Okay. Yeah, but so getting back to the appoint versus uh, being made righteous. So I think because we know that we're not made righteous at justification, like actually righteous. Uh, we're counted righteous, but we're not made perfect, as in we don't become sinless on the spot when we are justified. We're counted righteous through the work of Christ. Um, I think that's a very important distinction, and that's the distinction that's being made here by Paul. So by the one's man obedience, the many will be appointed righteous. And that's the same way that we relate to Adam. It's not that we were made sinners in that we followed the example of Adam and therefore sinned. We were made sinners in that we relate to him and are counted sinners because of his sin. The guilt of Adam is imputed or counted to us. So that would be the threefold imputation. Adam's guilt to all human beings, the sin of the elect to Christ, and Christ's active and passive obedience to the elect. We are finally made righteous, for sure. We do grow in righteousness, sanctification, but at the, what Paul's talking about here is the righteousness that is from God that we talked about in chapter 1 and chapter 3, the righteousness of Christ counted to us. We're clothed in his righteousness upon justification. Completely righteous in God's sight, but actually um, we don't become righteous like Christ was perfect in that moment, but we're counted righteous. I think that's a very important distinction, and that, I think, is a great defense of the fact that that's the same way that we have to relate to Adam. We don't relate to Adam in a different way that all of a sudden we relate to Christ. Um, the two are the same, and that's what Paul is contrasting here. And then in verse 14, he goes on. Oh, he says, sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, uh, but sin was not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of uh, of the one to come. I think that sinning that was not like the transgression of Adam is in between Adam and Moses. You didn't have the law. And so Adam had, excuse me, the expressed uh, command of God that he violated. But between Adam and Moses, you did not have the expressed law of God that you, that you got with Moses when it came down on Sinai. Um, 
And so their sinning was not the same as Adam, yet death reigned because the guilt of Adam was counted to them nonetheless. Um, the tricky part with that, I think Murray holds to that view that, that sin was not counted where there is no law, like it actually wasn't counted, and so they died because of the guilt of Adam imputed to them. Uh, Schreiner would think that people die also because of their personal sin as well as the guilt that is counted to them. I think either way, the, the, the thought process is the same. Um, and the transgression was not like that of Adam, who was a type of one to come, is just describing that um, Christ is the true and better Adam. He is the true and better head of the new race. He's the firstborn of many brethren. Um, he is the head of the redeemed race. Joshua, do we not vote you unanimously that Grant was the right man to, for that job? <laughs> I think so. I hope, I, hope clear. I hope it was clear. Yeah, no, it's so good. Josh, any thoughts? I do think, I mean, that was really helpful to see you unpack it, but as the way you set it out, I think, paves the way for us to see Christ as the better Adam, the second Adam who restores what was lost in the garden, ultimately through the first Adam. Um, and I thought Grant did a good job with it. Oh, yeah. No, unbelievable. And uh, this is, you know, four phrases Grant just covered. Sin entered the world through one man, Adam. Death entered the world through sin. Death spread to all men because all sinned. But, um, well, and history proves that death reigns over all men because all sin, all death, all die. Adam originally had no sin nature, but when he broke that one command that God had given him, the sin nature that dominated him from that time on was passed on to every human except for Jesus. And so MacArthur says that, that as far as guilt is concerned, every human being was with Adam in the garden as far as that goes committing that sin in that in that they are all guilty we are all guilty and every human being was in the garden with adam and shares in that sin he committed there we're sinners because we sin just like uh not that's true but more accurately we sin because we're sinners and so if you had a baby picture we do a bend of four cells while we do a bend yes four cells at that point three days after conception he was a sinner right because he just and you would say well wait a second he's a cute little four cell guy at that point but that already he was conceived and we see that psalm 51 5 that we were we were born even conceived in sin due to Adam, not because they were sinning already or sinning in the womb. Um, I found it interesting that there's this parenthesis. This was Martin Lloyd-Jones talking about the end of 11 where there's this dash or a parenthesis that he comes back to later. Um, but we see the universality of sin and death. And so um, it's a reigning principle. So sin, and this is, again, Martin Lloyd-Jones, sin invaded. He said sin's personified here. It invaded the world with that first transgression that, that Adam did. And see that it's Adam that is blamed for the sin, not Eve. That's interesting, too, right? Adam's the man of the garden. He should have stopped Eve. He was right there, and he did nothing 
Um, and I think we as men still struggle with um, being passive today as he was. Um, death is the punishment for that sin. So now, 15 to 17, there's a great contrast between Adam and Jesus. So the one thing in 15 to 17 where you can say Adam and Jesus are the same is they both represent a large number of people. Okay, after that, there isn't any similarity. So Grant just covered, and Josh is going to, the comparison. This is a huge contrast. So is the free gift and grace are mentioned eight times in these three verses. It's so interesting. And this is a 15a, sort of the thief statement here. But the free gift is not like the trespass. And I never thought about it. The free gift is not like the trespass. The free gift is a billion times better than the trespass. That's what Martin Lloyd-Jones stressed. We have this free gift. It's amazing. Do we have the trespass that was inherited? Absolutely. But the free gift just far outweighs that. And uh, I love the way it starts with that. And it abounded. It overflowed. Look at the passage. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Abounded. Right? It is. And so I hope that we don't just get an intellectual grasp on this today, but we really can enjoy that free gift or appreciate what the Lord Jesus has done. It is astounding when we think of it, of how that grace overwhelms, and it makes me think of 21, kind of. Oh, Josh, that's coming to you. We'll wait. We'll wait for Josh to uh, um, talk about that. So the free gift, um, if you go get versus the trespass, Jesus gave the gift with grace and favor. So Adam, he sinned with defiance. But the big thing to show here, um, according to many of the commentators, is the superiority of the of the gift of Jesus. One sin led to condemnation, and uh, and like Grant said, Adam wasn't just our example. We just didn't sin because he set a bad example. It was inherited. So our sin led to judgment, condemnation to all. One sin led to that con condemnation, but so is the gift. And look at there, fifth, sixteen again. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment followed one trespass brought, that brought condemnation, but the free gift followed many trespasses through justification. So the many trespasses, commentators point out, is all of our sin too, right? It wasn't just Adam's one sin that has us in trouble. It's all of our sin, right? We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In Adam, it's been imputed that guilt, but then we certainly are guilty every year. Um, oh, there's those in this room who could give me the ax from my day job. But every year, uh, Dr. Krauss, I'll just confess this, we have a huge debate in Bible class, right in this passage. And I take the role of an unbeliever, a ridiculous unbeliever, an obnoxious unbeliever. And I go hard after what Grant just talked about saying, 
I do not deserve to inherit Adam's sin. I did not know Adam. I did not know his house cat. I did not. I know why does this. 6,000 years ago, does that sin affect me? And then they will come up, even the unbelievers in my class get riled up and try to defend. Like, and there's, but there's, for the unbeliever, if they are, stick to that negative, it is hard to defend that unless you go to the free gift. That's, right? It's just, and that's what they end up telling me, is to say, calm down. That's just the way it is. And I was like, I don't like it. And they would say, no, it's just true. We just have to believe it. And, and, and it is. That was inherited to us, whether we like it or not. But what we do have is the free gift. Don't forget the free gift here. Um, so the contrast is huge. One more quick thing, Josh, and it's all yours. Uh, for if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And so this is a forensic de declaration of God himself. Death reigned in life. I like the way the, comment, the commentator said, this world, I know, and this sounds negative, this world is a world of cemeteries, they said. Right? Birth is fatal. We're all going to die. We have inherited that from that sin, which then leads to death. <coughs> but there's the free gift. Let's not forget the free gift. The, com the comparison back to you here. Okay, yep, yeah, finish it out. Um, a few, you know, I <clears throat> when I was reading some along in with Grant's passage, the you can sort of think that how is this fair? <clears throat> I mean, it would be sort of easy to think how did Adam, how is God going to treat me on the basis of what Adam has done? I think that's clearly taught in this passage. Uh, I think Grant laid it out extremely well, but a couple questions I thought were just helpful in dealing with that objection. Sounds like what you guys do in class, but um, uh, as Grant pointed out, a lot in life truly works on this on the basis of this representation factor or uh, idea or concept. Uh, you think about parents making decisions that represent their children. Um, this civil magistrates, uh, certain political leaders make decisions that affect us all. And uh, even like my, my boss at work or, or your supervisor at your work is, is this, we have this representation thing going on. Um, a lot of times my boss is asked questions based on decisions that I make and so sort of my, my fate would be tied into my boss and uh, we certainly have constant or other people acting on our behalf but then as Grant also pointed out we have to ask would we have done any better in the garden than Adam and there's no way we would have fared far worse and I think finally the clincher is that think about what we lose if we trade away imputation. We, we By this doctrine, it's only by virtue of imputation that we get righteousness, that we get eternal life, that we get all of the benefits that Christ um, um, 
took for us or that Christ um, made possible for us or secured for us. Uh, all of those blessings come to us by virtue of imputation. And so if we, if we want to ask, do we really want to be treated only on what we do? Do we really want to go there? Because if you tease out the logic all the way through, we, we don't want ultimately only what we do because then we miss out on the blessings of salvation. So <clears throat> that I, I got that from a few different places, but it was so helpful uh, to think clearly, I think biblically, about imputation. Um, it, is that any thoughts on that, Grant? <clears throat> so moving into 18, uh, 18, if, if you look at this verse, it's almost a direct parallelism. And you have uh, one tre- trespass, led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So you have this direct parallelism, and you see imputation running running both ways. Not only are we imputed with Adam, but if we're believers, if we have faith in Christ, we get everything that Christ secured for us. Um, and so f- those on... Uh, you, know, you see condemnation there and justification are directly contrasted. And if you think about condemnation, that would be, as Schreiner puts it, those on whom a sentence of judgment is passed versus justification would be uh, being declared right before God. And so Adam is superior in that way. And <clears throat> the, the one act there in the verse, the, the, the one act that leads to justification in life, I think to maintain integrity with the verse and the parallel refers to Christ's work on the cross. So you have the one act of Adam in the garden where he ate the fruit and um, spiritual death came upon him instantly. Uh, This one act is, I think, Christ absorbing God's wrath on the cross. And so I think it's important because our justification and life there at the end of 18 uh, means that we aren't just restored to a, a pre-Adam state. We're kind of set back to um, even with God, but we're counted right before God and then enjoy eternal life that Adam lost. We will enjoy in the age to come. And so then verse 19, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, uh, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous, Grant sort of touched on that, but you see, there you see the, the corporate aspect of the text coming through again. God's going to deal with us on the basis of two men, the works of two men, Adam, or the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And um, because of Adam's disobedience, the many are sinners, but because of Christ's obedience, the many are righteous. And uh, I, I agree with Grant, I think the verb appoint, I think Schreiner said, it could also mean to constitute, or it's denoting a status. Um, but then as Grant also mentioned, we will ultimately be made righteous one day in the future. But uh, it's, I think it's important that people, we understand people are sinners because of who we are in Adam, and then we are righteous because of who we are in Christ. And I think Christ's obedience there is in reference to... Um, Possibly his obedience on the cross, which climaxes a life, a long time life of obedience, um, but certainly his perfect life is uh, ultimately imputed to us. 
So w- one last thing before I move on to the last two verses is... Can I just... Yeah, 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 go, so, go like, right Because I think that's an important point you're talking about. We're not just made back to Adam with, with, with this imputation. We're made, we're made righteous. And, and Paul introduced that, um, or, or we're given his righteous life is imputed to us as well. So he introduced that here in uh, verse 10 of chapter 5. For if while we were enemies... We are reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So I think that was a great point to, to throw in that um, our, our sins were paid for on the cross, but then also Christ's righteous and perfect life that he lived was, was credited to us as well. There's, there's the third part of that imputation. So I just wanted to throw back to that verse to, to re-highlight that, what yep. you said. It, and we ultimately need that. Or else we would just fall right back into sin. Christ paid for sin, but we need his life credited, his perfect life credited to us, his um, active obedience. So, if you look um, at the end of verse 18, I want to come back to this. So, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Some people, some maybe liberal commentators or theologians have taken that to mean all will ultimately be saved. And I just want to say, I don't think that's what Paul is referring to there. He's not teaching a universalism. And I think that will be clear just on the entire letter that we've, the entire, entire letter of Romans, Paul clearly teaches faith. You have to have faith in Christ's work to be saved. Um, but also, if you look back in the verse right before that, verse 17, uh for if because of one man's trespass death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace. So it has to be received for there to be uh, true salvation. And this is clearly not teaching a universalism. So lastly, any comments before I go on to the last two verses? Um, So Paul kind of switches gears a little bit here in verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So these verses show how the law increases our knowledge of sin. And of course the law defines what's right and wrong shows us what actions and attitudes are uh, not right before God and are, are sinful. And so we wouldn't know exactly what those are without the law. And um, when the law came, it's like when a rule is broken, if that rule is clearly posted on the board, I'm thinking like in your teacher setting, if you've got a rule that's clearly up on the board and a kid sees it and then goes to break that rule, it heightens the trespass. It heightens the uh, inherent sinfulness of it. And so when the law came, uh, it increased our trespass. Uh, but you see the contrast here in the verse. It only show, it only served to show how grace abounded all the more and that grace would reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life in Christ. So <clears throat> um, his grace not only abounds, but it superabounds. And his gift of righteousness is seen in the backdrop of the law even more clearly. And I think the law can, um, I think Steve Lawson was talking about this, serve to help our evangelism. And when you 
examine people or when people examine themselves through the law, they begin to see themselves clearly for who they are and what they are, and ultimately measuring uh, or falling fall short of God's demands and points us back to Christ. <clears throat> Good. Grant, final thoughts. Think I have it. So good. So uh, such an important uh, passage. So much more to say if we had more time. Cranfield said, I love this, the secular mind would have expected many sins to attract more judgment than um, the once. But grace operates with a different arithmetic. That one single misdeed should be answered by judgment. That's perfectly understandable. One misdeed should be answered by judgment, but that the accumulated sins and guilt of all ages should be answered by God's free gift. That is the miracle of miracles. And I hope that that's what happens when we look at a passage like this, deep, really intriguing, intellectually challenging maybe, but that we leave with a huge, huge joy that Jesus won gift, that work on the cross, like Josh said, that erased our sins and separated them as far as east is from the west, and his perfect life of 33 years, that's been imputed into your account. So that gives us a different status. And someday, like Grant pointed out, and so did Josh, when we're glorified, we will become righteous. We will be made righteous like we've already been declared. We are already declared righteous, which is just amazing. So Cranfield said it's the miracle of miracles beyond human comprehension. And uh, would certain, certainly agree with that. Josh, any final things? I don't think What's so. What's the passage done for you as you thought about it? I think it has led to <clears throat> a greater sense of assurance or security. My fate is bound up with Christ. I'm not going back and forth from mm -hmm. being treated like Adam or being treated like Christ. My fate <clears throat> is tied to Christ. And it has, I think, helped me be more secure or, or confident in that or whatever you might good. say. Yeah, that chapter 5 and chapter 8, really good for that security. Um, good. Grant? Would you pray for us, and uh, especially as we start thinking about chapter 6, equally fascinating and really, really uh, foundational, again, to how we go about sanctification, uh, really starting next week, Lord willing. Okay. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that you have provided for us to um, read and discuss your word uh, publicly and with our brothers and sisters in this local church that you have brought together in Athens and Father I pray that we would all uh, be strengthened by what we have learned about the doctrine of imputation that it wouldn't just be an intellectual exercise but that we would truly cherish that we are now in Christ that he is our head uh, and that we are redeemed in him and Father I pray that all of us would go to your word, um, that if anything we said was mistaken, Father, that it would be clarified by us searching your word and coming to a clear and right understanding. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you get a chance, read 6 to 8 on sanctification, I think 77 verses that are just 
one thrilling verse after another and, and uh, read that in a sitting if you could before or next week and we'll see you then, Lord willing. Thank you.